0: Welcome to Season 3 of A New Voice of Freedom, the podcasts are taken from the four volumes In Defense of Christianity, written by Ronald Keith Messer. Podcast 129 is entitled Origins.
1: The Bible is noted for its tantalizing brevity. As we open Genesis, we read,
0: In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Genesis 1.1.
1: WHAT DOES IN THE BEGINNING MEAN? WHEN DID IN THE BEGINNING OCCUR? WHERE WERE WE WHILE THE EARTH WAS BEING CREATED? IT IS STRANGE, BUT GOD ASKED JOB THE SAME QUESTION.
0: THEN THE LORD ANSWERED JOB OUT OF THE WHIRLWIND, AND SAID, WHO IS THIS THAT DARKENETH COUNSEL BY WORDS WITHOUT KNOWLEDGE? GIRD UP NOW THY LOINS LIKE A MAN, FOR I WILL DEMAND OF THEE, AND ANSWER THOU ME. Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measure thereof, if thou knowest? And who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Job 38, 1-7
1: We must ask, who were the morning stars that sang together, and who were the sons of God who shouted for joy? The Lord tells the psalmist David,
0: Psalms 82.6 I have said, Ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High.
1: King David makes it clear that we are children of God. In other words, we are all the sons of God who shouted for joy which by divine inheritance would make us gods, being the offspring of God. We would have been those morning stars who sang together. It is also clear then that we were present when God laid the foundations of the earth. Three very important principles were taught by the Lord to Job and to David. Principle 1. We are immortal children of God. Principle 2. We lived in heaven with God before the heaven and the earth were created. In fact, we rejoiced at its creation. Principle 3. The earth and the heavens, meaning our galaxy, have a beginning. The question arises, why did we sing together, and why did we shout for joy? The question is rhetorical. The earth was created for us. At the time referred to in the beginning, we were immortal spirits. The Lord created the earth for us, so that we may live on earth and gain a physical body. As Christians, this is proof that we lived with God before the earth was created and rejoiced at its creation. Job asked God,
0: What is man that thou shouldest magnify him, and that thou shouldest set thine heart upon him, and that thou shouldest visit him every morning and try him every moment? How long wilt thou not depart from me, nor let me alone till I swallow down my spittle? I have sinned, what shall I do unto thee, O thou preserver of men? Why hast thou set me as a mark against thee, so that I am a burden to myself? And why dost thou not pardon my transgression, and take away mine iniquity? For now shall I sleep in the dust, and thou shalt seek me in the morning, but I shall not be. Job seven seventeen
1: 17-21 Job is speaking of death when he said, For now shall I sleep in the dust, and thou shalt seek me in the morning, but I shall not be. Clearly Job thinks death is imminent, therefore he is calling upon the mercy of Christ. Why dost thou not pardon my transgression, he asked and take away mine iniquity? Job knows who his Redeemer is. O thou preserver of men! It was also Job who said,
0: Job 19.26 and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God.
1: Job, of course, is speaking of the resurrection. At the time Job asks the question, he is in despair. He has suffered tragedy after tragedy. He has lost everything that he loved. The greatness of Job is his infinite patience in suffering. He never blames God for his suffering, he is calling upon God for redemption. His question is genuine. When he asks God, what is man? Job is burdened down by his mortality. He is floundering in his own sense of nothingness. One of the themes of Job is that in comparison to God, we are nothing without God. In fact, chapters 38, 39, 40, and 41 of Job emphasize the greatness of God and the weakness of man. The concreteness of the language of the book of Job carries its poetic power. In reminding Job of his weakness and of God's strength, the Lord said,
0: Canst thou dry out Lothiaphan with an hook, or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down? Canst thou put an hook into his nose, or bore his jaw through with a thorn? Will he make many supplications unto thee? Will he speak soft words unto thee? Will he make a covenant with thee? Wilt thou take him for a servant forever? Wilt thou play with him as with a bird, or wilt thou bind him for thy maidens? Job 41, 1-5
1: It appears that King David had Job in mind when he asked the same question.
0: When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon, and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Psalms 8,
1: 3-9 Let me point out the nature of Hebrew poetry as found in the Old Testament. Hebrew poetry relies upon parallelism to communicate its relationship among ideas. David is quoting Job. Their questions are exactly the same. Job asks, What is man? David asks, What is man? The ancient Hebrews reading the two accounts would automatically make the connection between the two prophets, Job and David. The emphasis is in the repetition. The information is in the differences. Therefore, while thinking about Job's answer through the biblical allusion, like the ancient Israelites, we should also consider David's answer. Job asks one question, What is man that thou shouldest magnify him, and that thou shouldest set thine heart upon him? David asked two questions. What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? Man, of course, refers to the posterity of Adam. The son of man refers to Christ, who is the Creator. Both Job and David are comparing us with Christ, showing us that without Christ we are nothing. David expands the theme by referring to the story of creation found in Genesis.
0: be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Genesis one through 26-28
1: We know that the Son of Man is one of the titles given to Christ. David clearly establishes the Son of Man as Creator. In effect, both prophets are asking, Why did God, who is omnipotent, create us who are powerless? David assumes that we know the story of Job and the story of creation. David begins by saying, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man? Then verses 4-8 through of Psalms 8 compounds the question because God gave us dominion over the works of his hands. David ends by praising God. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. David is weaving the story of the creation and the story of Job into his own narrative. The literary and spiritual allusions are clear. Parallelism marks the greatness of Hebrew poetry and expands meaning exponentially. David assumes that we also will consider the story of the creation and the story of Job as we read Psalm 8. Job asks, What is man? The psalmist asks, What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him? In the same vein as Job, David speaks of the created and the creator and teaches us about our relationship to Christ, just as Job was taught about his relationship to Christ. However, when David asks, What is man that thou art mindful of him? He is asking, Why would the Lord bother with someone so insignificant as we are? In contrast, when David asks, What is the Son of Man that thou visitest him? David is comparing us with Christ, and we fall very short. In other words, why would God visit Christ, who is also a God, and yet visit us, who are nothing? It is like the sparrow that falls. Nothing to God goes unnoticed. Christ is greater than us, as we are greater than the sparrow, yet God is mindful of us all. Job knew that Christ was the creator. Genesis one could read,
0: In the beginning Christ created the heaven and the earth.
1: Modern science thinks it has debunked the creation story, but all it has done is to debunk man's erroneous interpretations of the creation story. Here is one of the great paradoxes of modern science and modern theology. Both began to move away from truth when they began to compete. The scriptures say almost nothing about how the earth was created. Religion focuses on the creator. The message of the creation story is that earth, man, and the cosmos were all created by intelligent design for a purpose. Christianity focuses not on the temporal laws of creation, which is the strength of science, but on the purpose of creation. There never has been a valid reason for science and religion to split. All truth, temporal or spiritual, just as all laws, temporal or spiritual, must be in harmony all the time. No law can contradict another law. It is the folly of man to think so. Religion strays from truth when it moves into limiting God on how he organized his laws. Science strays from truth when it denies intelligent design. There is no competition between true religion and true science. Both can embrace the other without contradiction. Christianity embraces intelligent design. Though science denies intelligent design, science can produce no evidence against intelligent design. In fact, all the evidence of science points to intelligent design. True science should remain silent on the issue and focus entirely on temporal law, leaving philosophy alone, for they can never prove or disprove the existence of God. It is and will always be beyond the math, the observations, and the instruments of man to detect God. All theoretical errors of modern science stem from the fact that it denies intelligent design. It is their greatest blunder. Science will never discover the holy grail of physics until it accepts intelligent design. In trying to explain the origins of man and the universe without intelligent design, Theoretical science turns its back on the scientific method. Science cannot be the father of truth when it is the offspring of chance. Science cannot discover the governing law of the universe when major premises are accident, coincidence, or serendipity of circumstances. Just as religion loses its way when it yields to science to form its opinions about God, science loses its way when it yields to religion to form its opinions about creation. Those who think that science is without the worship of gods knows very little about science. Religion is defined by its god substitutes, chance, accident, coincidence, evolution, and probability. Theoretical science is made of idol worship. Christianity offers us free will, freedom, liberty, and agency. Science offers us a soulless body, a mindless robot governed by temporal law, a chained mind ruled by circumstance. The heaven created by science is reduced to our brief time on earth. It is filled with earthly pleasures and sensual satisfactions. The heaven created by religion is eternal joy in the presence of God. Science offers us death and annihilation. Christianity offers us the resurrection and eternal life. The hell created by science is far worse than any hell imagined by Christians. The Christian hell is governed by justice and ameliorated by mercy. The scientific hell consists of a giant heat death, a cosmic deep freeze, maximum equilibrium, annihilation, fluctuations, and a soulless universe. For Christians, grace extends to everyone who asks for it. It extends to all children who have not reached accountability and to all those who are ignorant of the law. Only Satan and his angels and other sons of perdition who knowingly and willfully refuse to allow Christ to save them are denied the glory of God forever. Christ has the keys to the Christian hell to release its prisoners. In the scientific hell, there are no keys, no saviors. There is no egress. To science, all God's children, even babies, are consigned to eternal hell, damnation, darkness, death, and annihilation. Science claims that life began by accident in some nebulous past. Christianity teaches us that we are the children of God and lived with him in heaven before the earth was created. In the Christian paradigm, God is the father of our spirits and the creator of our physical bodies, and he created earth for our benefit. Biogenesis is the key to understanding the forms of life around us, but it is not the key to understanding the origin of life. Intelligence has no origin. Biogenesis is the answer to the origin of death. Intelligence has always existed, otherwise even God must have a first cause, which contradicts all laws of probability. Accidental intelligence has no more validity than an accidental universe. We are the children of God. He is the father of our spirits, which are in the likeness of God, just as we are in the likeness of our earthly parents. But intelligence, our life force, must be as old as God, which means itself exists without beginning or ending. Christ created our physical bodies and breathed into man the breath of life. In other words, he placed our immortal spirits which contained our intelligence into our mortal bodies. Our intelligence is to our spirit body what our spirit body is to our physical body. If God created intelligence and there is inequality in life, then he created us as unequal, given one an advantage over the other, and religion means nothing. We become victims of our own predestination. That is the claim of evolutionists. They just don't call it God. They call it happy accident, natural selection. Christians who insist on predestination due to the spirit what scientists who insist on the absence of free will due to the body make slaves of us all. At the core of Christianity is free will, freedom, agency, equality, individual responsibility, self-reliance, and personal ownership. The soul of man is not now and never has been, eternity coupled with eternity, a robot, a swirling mass of mindless matter shaped by the solar wind. We are not slaves to gods or demons who arbitrarily intervene in the running of the universe. God cannot create inequality and be perfect. Free will must be inherent in the life force. Religion began when God gave us the ability, through obedience to law, to expand into our own potential and provided a way for us to gain immortality and eternal life with him if we choose. By analyzing the laws of God, both temporal and spiritual, By searching out the essential attributes of good, we will find that at the heart of every law of God is the principle of agency, the principle of perfection, and the potential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. By analyzing the wiles of the devil, by searching out the essential attributes of evil, we will find that at the heart of every broken law is the principle of captivity, the principle of imperfection the potential of spiritual death, imprisonment, and eternal misery. Because Satan has no creative powers, his only goal is to destroy the creations of God and to destroy the potential of man who does have the potential for creative powers. Man, through law and the grace of God, has the potential of becoming perfect like God. Satan, being eternally damned, hates perfection because Christ, whom he hates, is perfect. Satan's torment is eternal imperfection and a constant jealous rage. Justice has its due and Lucifer becomes his own devil, confining himself to eternal torment through tempestuous pride. Rejecting light, he becomes an angel of darkness, calling darkness light. Rejecting truth, he becomes the father of lies, calling lies truth. He lives in eternal chaos and commotion embroiled in the everlasting riptides of hellish confusion, fighting to free himself from that which he is eternally bound by willful captivity. Calling good evil, joy, misery, and captivity freedom, he lives forever in willful evil, misery, and captivity. He is bound by justice and tormented by jealousy. But we worship Christ and say with David,
0: O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Thank you for listening. Watch for our next podcast.
1: In Defense of Christianity is available at RonaldMesser.com.